Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Sarah Jones. Maybe no one will notice that you smell like shit. You're a dog. (laughs) That and more. But before that, let me just say that, you know, your to-do list can seem out of control. So much to do, so little time. But there's one thing you can check off your to-do list, going to the post office, thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. Stamps.com sends you a digital scale. You can automatically calculate the exact postage you need for any letter or package, any class of mail. You won't waste time going to the post office again because you can do it right from your desk. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. And Risk is also brought to you today by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. Where can you find everything you need to create an exceptional website? Squarespace.com! Squarespace.com! And you can drag and drop your images to a will look great on any device. Building state-of-the-art web pages and blogs has never been easier. So try squarespace.com That's right, Squarespace sites look so professionally designed, regardless of your skill level. No coding required. They're trusted by millions of people, some of the most respected brands in the world. You can start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. Use the offer code RISK to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the Bombay Royale behind me now. We're calling today's episode Unspoken. Three stories from people who, um, well, were in situations where someone could have spoken up about something. And in all three stories, there's very different results. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Angel Yao. But before that, we're going to hear uh, something from our recent Philadelphia show from Sarah Jones. Not to be confused with the famous performance artist, this Sarah Jones is the kind of Sarah Jones that would uh, tell a story that we call (laughs) Kibbles and Bits. In 2010, I was absolutely obsessed with image and uh, social status. More specifically, the way that I looked to everybody else. So what that meant was I wanted to curate the perfect image of myself to project without actually having to do the structural work behind it to hold it up. This involved several things. One of the things was having the perfect body. So I was going to the gym every day, sometimes twice a day. I was trying to eat right as well as I could, and when I wasn't, I was throwing it all up. And um, this involved like having the perfect dude to stand next to, you know, like the picture perfect thing. At this time, I had been introduced by a good friend of mine, Drew, to um, this guy, Nick, who had what I thought was the complete package. He had these great green eyes. He had his own house. He had his own car. He had the most adorable chocolate lab, Eli Manning. And I I won't lie, that really contributed heavily to the package and also his abs did too. But (laughs) um, so I was pursuing this guy and we were hooking up but nothing serious was happening. I was trying really hard. So I was going to the gym to get my perfect body to attract him further. And I was going with this girl named Tiffany. And Tiffany was a really good friend of mine at the time. She was kind of like my guru. She was an expert at all things beauty, at fashion, at (laughs) things involving the bowels. So where I was throwing my extra food up, she was pushing them down with laxatives out the opposite end of her body. And she was always telling me things like, you really need to try this out. Like, girl, you're gonna mess up your teeth with that acid. You're gonna be janky by the time you are 30. Like, just just come see the light. And you know, I'm thinking, this is working really well for me. Like, I've got everything figured out. (laughs) I'm gonna stick with what I'm doing. Thank you very much. But it got to the point where I ran into her one day and I had just eaten a huge Mexican meal. I had like, the combo plate with like gorditas and tacos and flautas with extra guac and just the whole shebang and I had seen her right before I was going to do my business you know and she was like dude you can't do that anymore your teeth are it's happening it's happening now and you need to stop it so I was like all right this doesn't look good 
I'll take your advice. But if I'm going to do this, like, this all needs to come out. So I need to get a little bit more than regular. Like, could you give me just twice the dose? I think that should be good. I think that should take care of it. And she's like, oh, yeah, 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 I got you. And she hooks me up with it. And I'm like, all right, you know, I'm kind of excited to try something new. So... (laughs) So I go home, and I get my setup ready. I, um, I go to my bathroom, and I have my 32-ounce Nalgene. I have uh, little wet wipes. I have some bathroom literature. I'm ready to set up for the long haul, you know, whatever happens. I get there. I sit on the toilet. I'm feeling pretty good about things. I drink my water, and I'm, you know, just cracked open my literature when I get a text message, my literature being, like, Cosmopolitan magazine, you know. And um, I get a text message. It's from this guy, Nick, and it's like, hey, you want to go camping this weekend? I'm like, yeah, I will go anywhere with you. Sure. <laughs> and so I send that message back, not, not the anywhere part, but I'm like, yes, yes, I am interested. <laughs> and he replies back pretty quickly, like, cool, I'll be there in 30 minutes. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, cool, I'll be ready. So... I go into overdrive. I'm like, I refill my Nalgene, and I'm doing like stretches, you know, I'm like squishing around on the toilet, I'm like doing squats. I'm like really trying to make this happen, and it's not happening. You know, 20 minutes later, I get a message from him that's like, hey, I'm on my way. And I'm like, okay, cool, Uh, I'll I'll, I'll see you outside. (laughs) And I get ready. I go, I grab a toothbrush, I grab some flip-flops, and I grab a bikini to throw in a bag for the entire weekend. I figure that's substantial. And I'm ready to go. I'm like, you know, I guess, I guess I'm going to have to do this. He pulls up five minutes later with Eli Manning in tow. Before we leave town, we stop at the gas station for road beers. Not for gas, because he had filled up before he picked me up. For road beers. And I'm like, yes, my last chance while we're still in civilization for a toilet. So I jet to the bathroom, and I'm like really excited because I feel something happening, but all that happens is a lot of pee because I drank so much water. So I walk back to the car, pretty disappointed. (laughs) And Eli's there just like, yeah, let's party, you know, let's go. So he jumps back in the car, and we have our road beers all ready, and we take off. And, I, you know, I'm okay with it. I'm like, all right, I'm still feeling good. Maybe I'll make it to the campsite. No big deal. And I drink a beer, still feeling pretty good, keeping an eye on things. Everyone's having a good time. Got this under control. And I crack open my second beer because I might as well get a buzz on the way there. I've taken, like, my first sip when I feel that unmistakable bubble, that little that like lets you know you have to go and you have to go now. Like like that scene in Bridesmaids, you know, where they all realize they have food poisoning at the same time and they're like, oh my God, where's the bathroom? So I stiffen up and my eyes bug out and I'm like looking through my sunglasses like, oh God, oh God, can you tell? Does he know? <laughs> he's, he's, he doesn't notice a thing. So I'm like, okay, I can play this off. You know, maybe I can just say I gotta pee. I'm like, hey, can we pull over? Hey, I think I got to pee. He's like, yeah, I think Eli could use a little walk. So I'm like, yes, okay, great. We're in a wooded area. This is perfect. I can walk. So we get out. He hands me a roll of paper towels because why would he have toilet paper? And I, I take off walking, and I'm walking for like a solid two minutes into the woods 
because I want to make sure he can't see me, he can't hear me, but most importantly, he cannot smell what is going to come out because I know what I've eaten. I know what's happening. And I think I've reached a safe spot, but at this point, I'm just like too desperate to really care that much. So I lean up against this tree and I pull my pants down. They're like right here on my knees. And I just, it all just erupts like liquid hot lava. Like, like, like my asshole is Vesuvius and everything underneath it is Pompeii. Like the ants are there just dead. Ash. And, <laughs> and um, it happens. And I hear this rustling behind me, like right as that's in the middle of happening. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, please tell me he is not this creepy guy trying to scare me or surprise me in the woods. And I turn around and it's, it's Eli Manning. So um, I'm like, go away, Eli. You do not want any of this. Still kind of squatting and leaking, you know. And he's the friendliest dog in the world. So he's like, yeah, sure, I'll play. And he comes over and he's licking my hand. And um, yeah, I'm still like shooing him away. But at this time, I feel like round two coming on. So I am no longer preoccupied with Eli Manning. It all just comes shooting out again. And I can still kind of see him in my periphery. He's busied himself with the shrubbery or whatever's happening over here. And then I finally finish up. You know, I feel really relieved. Things are looking up. I clean up. I can still see him, so I feel good. And I, I start to finish because I realize, you know, what damage has really been done. And um, pull up my pants, and I'm just finishing checking everything off when I realize I can't see him anymore. And I turn around, I hear this noise too. I'm hearing him like, and I turn around and I see him face deep in my shit. And it's like, it's like he hasn't eaten in days. It's not like he's just kind of like sniffing at it. It's like dinner for Eli. This is like his buffet. It's like his birthday. there's nothing I can do in my head I'm so worried about how I look that I'm like all right Eli you're fine let's go this is fine maybe no one will notice that you smell like shit you're a dog (laughs) so I grab his collar and I walk him back and at that point Nick is looking around like where is my dog you know and he is happy to see us but we all load up back in the car. Thank God he doesn't notice immediately. And we get on our way, you know, we're, we're ready to have a good weekend. And I'm like, nothing happened. This was just a pee, a really long pee. We go. And um, I'm still, I like, once we're sitting in there, I open up my beer and I'm drinking it again because I can. And I'm looking out the window and just kind of reflecting on what had just happened. Like, that was weird. That was a little weird. And. I wonder, I wonder if Eli smells. Can I, does he, can I smell him? And I'm kind of thinking about it. Can Nick smell him? And then I hear this, this noise on my other side. That's that thing that pet owners do with their dogs. You know, where they're like, who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? And I see Eli like snuggled up in the front, pushing his nose over and he is, he's licking Nick's face. And Nick's like, oh, who's a good boy? And he's like still driving, but they're kind of like making out you know like this is pretty graphic and Nick doesn't smell a thing so I'm not saying anything but I'm just there like cringing as hard as I've ever cringed like my knuckles were white and I'm not saying anything (laughs) the 
this went on for like a good full minute too. They were really like reunited and happy about it. But I never said a word about it, you know? I never said a word that whole weekend. I pretended like everything was okay. I didn't say anything. And things picked up between Nick and I. We started dating pretty seriously. Every single day we were seeing each other. When we weren't seeing each other, we were texting, which in my book is kind of, texting's pretty serious. And I, later that summer, we had been seeing each other for maybe four or five months, and then later that summer I had to go visit my dad overseas. He was working in Korea, and I was spending the summer with him. We were still talking every day while I was there. We were still pretty close. About a month and a half into my trip, I talked to my buddy Drew, who introduced us. And Drew's kind of catching me up on the antics of the summer, what all the rest of my friends have been up to, and he's been hanging out with Nick. And he's like, yeah, man, Nick's a real lady killer. Like, he's, he's got a different girl every night, but, you know, it, it's no big deal. Like, he shares. It's fine. And I'm like, this guy has no idea that we're still talking really seriously or that we're still together. Like, but I'm going to get every DOS detail out of him that I can. So I squeeze through for more information, and he just tells me everything because he has no idea. And then I call, I call Nick up. <laughs> as soon as we get off the phone, I'm kind of like, hey, Nick. So is all this stuff true? Is it really like a different girl every night? And he's kind of like, yeah. Um, was this something different than what it is? Like, do you think that we're serious? Because we never really defined this relationship. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. We never bothered to define it. I'm just thinking, you know, you see someone every day, and then you talk to them every day, and you think that you know what's going on. You think that you're on the same page. But I can't say anything because we never defined it. So I kind of brush it off and leave it at that. But I'm hurt. And I don't talk to him for a while. I think about it for a few days. And it takes me a while to, to realize that I wasn't hurt about him hooking up with the other girls. Like, I didn't really care that much about this guy. You know, I didn't, I didn't tell him about that thing that happened. And I don't really care. But what's eating me up is that this image I thought I had created isn't as perfect as I thought it was. And that once it was cracked, it all just kind of started to unravel and fall apart. And now I had to deal with that. Now I had to actually look at things, which I did. You know, I took the rest of the summer and still I'm kind of figuring things out. But when I got back, I still hung out with him for a while. And thinking about it now, I realized he was kind of a jerk. Like, that wasn't really a cool thing to do. And, you know, maybe he did sleep with a different girl every night. But to me, he's still that guy who ate my shit. <laughs> Thank you. What is that? That smell. It smells like sausage in here. There's a very funny smell in the air. You smell it? Smell what? That shit you just stepped in. Ew. Damn. Somebody smells like shit. I'd almost lost my appetite, only it smells wonderful. It could be a pile of shit out of somebody's asshole. I just went diarrhea all over the motherfucker. So delicious. Finger looking good. Mmm, I think I like it. I think that's shit. That's a bunch of crap. Poo poo. What's the matter? Aren't you hungry? I can't eat this crap without whipped cream. It's not that it tastes so great, but it's so good for you. Damn! That's some nasty shit, Ma! 
So in high school, I had this Word document on my desktop that I saved that I would open much every time I need a boost of happiness, which means almost every morning, because every time I wake up, I kind of hate myself. I was born in Queens. My parents were from China. Growing up, they would speak to me in Cantonese because they knew that it was easy for me to pick up English just by growing up in the neighborhood and watching TV. I remember in like kindergarten and nursery school, I had trouble grasping English. Like teachers would talk to me and I had no idea what they were saying and I'm always feeling that I'm in trouble. <laughs> I have home videos of me when I was little, like in nursery school, when they had like those class performance and everyone was dancing and happy and I was just shy. And so I just stood there, I couldn't even contribute. Like I just stood there and looked down. And I think it is because I didn't understand what they were saying. When I was growing up, I always had a hard time making friends. I just had trouble speaking in general, I guess, making conversation. So whenever I talk, it would be mumbling or just trying to find a word. So I'll sound like, hey, like that. And I think I do that most of the time because if they can't hear what I'm saying, and they ask me to repeat myself, and then that gives me a second chance to think if whatever I'm saying is stupid or it doesn't make sense, then I could readjust. But most of the time, they wouldn't hear me at all, so they would just be like, okay, that's she's a weirdo, and just move on. So right before high school, after junior high school graduation, I didn't want to go into another school being the same way, being shy and quiet and not making friends. So what changed this was a little thing called American Online. And I loved going online because it seemed like access to everything in the world and I didn't have to go outside. The thing that got me was instant messaging because it was a way for me to talk to people without actually talking. I could think about what I was going to say, type it out, and if I don't like what I'm reading, I could just delete it and then retype it and then send it, that translates to real life. That would be like five minutes of silence. <laughs> but online, it's like I could do all that, but it seems instant, and that's what I liked about it. And there's no face-to-face -face interaction, so they can't judge me on how I look or how I sound. I found that I was pretty funny online and pretty smart and <laughs> I could hold conversations so I just love talking to people online and so I noticed that you could search through profiles so it searched Townsend Harris that was the high school I went to in Queens I could see all these kids who are already in the high school and to be honest, I kind of like looked for a boy's name because at that time I was like boy crazy. <laughs> so I was looking through boys' names and I'll be like, hey, you don't know me, but I'm going to be a freshman going into this high school. Do you have any advice for me? And then that would just spark a conversation. And I thought it was so clever because I didn't really care about advice for high school, but it was such a conversation starter and they were nice so they just talked to me about high school and then I thought I was set. It seemed like I already made 25 friends or whatever it is before going to high school. 
They were all upperclassmen too, which I always liked making older friends because I felt more special. They played bass in a band, or they were the presidents of the AIDS Awareness Club, which was the cool kids club. They would just talk to me and give me general compliments, like things like, Angel, you're a good person, or you're nice, you seem nice, like just really generic statements. But I ate that up. Like I love compliments. I still love compliments, and those words that they're saying that I felt like I've never felt before made me feel pretty good and made my self-esteem raise higher. So I would copy and paste those statements and create a word document labeled "I'm cool" and just paste all these pieces of conversations into it and. Whenever I'm sad, I'll just read them, and it'll make me feel good. So I got to the high school. After school, I was so scared to just be with random people that I would usually wait in the bathroom just to avoid any conversation or even any. Judgment that I feel like people are passing, like oh she's by herself, she looks crazy. If I don't wait in the bathroom stall, I would wait outside by the steps, and I had a sketchbook that I had in junior high school, and there were drawings I was really proud of. And so if people would pass by, they'll be like, oh really cool drawing, want to be best friends, but <laughs> that never happened. So I'm just waiting for half an hour just. Staring at a drawing I did years ago, pretending to shade in some part that's not shaded. <laughs> um, when I try to meet most of these online friends I'm making, it was almost always <laughs> awkward because I would be the one to be like, "Oh, let's um, meet by the lockers." And the moment we meet, they don't see me, so I would have to like tap them on the shoulder and be like, "Hey, it's me." And then they'll be like, "Hey," and then I don't know what to say. And then it's just silence. And I'm like, "If we were online, this would be better." So I would just like kind of run away, <laughs> pretty much. But then the moment I'm online, I'm like talking to them nonstop, and I think most of them notice the difference in personality, but no one really said anything. They just thought that's how I am, and in my head, I thought I just need more time to adjust to real life, because like these people know that I can hold a conversation. They know who I am. I just need time for them to know me in not through IMs. <laughs> Later on the year, I'd say mid semester. I felt like I still wasn't really making friends because I am talking to them online, but I'm not hanging out with anyone outside of school or outside of online. And I thought I have to kind of step it up, <laughs> so I started IMing these friends. I want to cry, and I don't know why. And they would IM me back saying, "Oh no, you're so cool and you're so nice and you're such a great person. You shouldn't feel that." And then it's like automatic compliments. And so I had all these compliments that I could add to my document 
just pages and it felt good. I didn't feel like crying or anything like that, but I thought what a good conversation starter. Like it's creating genuine deep conversation and I thought would create genuine deep friendship. So I just kept doing that. So there's this one guy who was a senior while I was a freshman. He was like the president of the whole school. I remember him from orientation. He was very friendly, very smart, and he seemed like he wanted to help everyone. And so I was so happy when I got his screen name so I could talk to him. So there was one night that I saw Weezer for Life was on my buddy list. And I was like, I am going to I am him. So I thought if I I am, hey, I feel like crying. I don't know why. Maybe he'll be like, oh, be my girlfriend. So I I am him that. And he replied back with, hey, Angel, I think that you should talk to a friend friend or maybe a counselor. It's not like I'm your friend or anything. At that moment, my heart was broken, but also I was totally ashamed. He kind of called me out on it because he wasn't my friend because I I am to maybe a few times. And looking through my buddy list now, none of these, like the president of the AIDS Awareness Club isn't my friend or the person who played bass in the band wasn't really my friend because I kind of conned him into talking to me in the first place. I'm using like depression for a means to make real genuine conversation when I didn't feel like crying, but now I do feel like crying because he's telling me that I don't have friends and I feel like I was a modern day girl who cried wolf. I was the girl who cried, cried. So that was freshman year, and by the time I was senior, I realized that I had a group of friends that I was close to that I didn't approach online at all. It just happened. And I realized that there were no shortcuts in making friends that I didn't have to hide behind a computer. I have to make friends on my own, by myself as me.
This is Risk. This is Cheerleader behind me now. And after Sarah Jones, we heard a little interstitial from our old friend, Jell Soul, and our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Then we heard a little story called I'm Cool Dot Doc by Angel Yao. Angel has a show in Williamsburg, Brooklyn called VHS Presents, where storytellers show videos made before YouTube and cell phones. That sounds like a lot of fun. And now, I should tell you that this week's episode is brought to you in part by Casper Mattresses at Casper.com, where you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com slash risk and using the promo code risk. These Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly reasonable price. They've got just the right sink, just the right bounce. They use two technologies to get these Casper mattresses just right, latex foam and memory foam coming together for just the perfect fit. This is a risk-free trial with a return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They're made in America. This is $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. You go to the store, you'd be paying $1,500 for that kind of a mattress. And right now, you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com risk and using the promo code risk. Our final story on this week's episode uh, switches gears gets a little heavier here. This one was shared by New York-based storyteller Morgan Pielli. He told it at the Risk Live show in New York City. Here he is now, Morgan Pielli, with a story we call In Case of Emergency. I'm standing in the driveway of my childhood home in uh, upstate Connecticut, a small town called Granby. It's 2009. I'm standing there with my dad, and we're both in shock, and we're exhausted, and we're bewildered. My sister is sitting in the station wagon in the driveway, and she's with her best friend. My sister hasn't said more than a couple of words since the incident. Um, her, she's sitting there holding her best friend's hand. While we're waiting in the driveway, a white panel van pulls in, and it says on the side in large burgundy letters, Aftermath, Crime Scene Cleanup. Two middle-aged gentlemen step out of the van, their heavy-set, dark, curly hair. They speak in the sort of neutral middle tones that people adopt who are used to dealing with tragedy on a daily basis. They say things like, show us around the premises, please show us where the incident took place. My dad and I lead them up the stone walkway to the house that I grew up in, in the middle of nowhere in the woods in Connecticut. We lead them through the doorway, through the uh, police tape that's since been severed. 
Upon entering the doorway, one of the gentlemen notices a spent shell casing on the ground that the police had missed, and he politely places it on my mom's antique sewing machine by the door. We direct him to our left. Through the TV room, uh, the door frame to the TV room has a large plastic semi-opaque sheet stapled to it. In the middle of the floor in the TV room is a large red blood smear. The walls are splattered with blood. It looks like the set of a slasher movie. This is where the first of the two German Shepherds was killed, uh, Dante. He was the dog that I had named when I was in high school. We lead them out from that room through the living room and into the dining room. Uh, this is where Christmases were celebrated. This is where every Thanksgiving my mom insisted on buying that ridiculous six-foot sub that we would have instead of a turkey. Um, in the middle of this room, there is also a large red blood smear and some blood splattering and a shattered vase about knee-high. This is where my mom shot and killed the second German Shepherd. And this one I don't remember the name of. She had acquired it after I had gone off to grad school. According to the police reports, what happened next was that my mom, Brooke Pielli, walked over to the telephone, called the police, and said, I have just shot and killed both of my dogs. I'm going to kill myself now. She then went out to the backyard of my childhood home. She went to a park bench that we had set up along the side of the stream. Uh, she was a crime novelist and a reporter for the local paper. She covered the, uh, the crime beat there as well. And she would often sit in the park bench and reflect and go over stories. Here she sat and waited for the sound of the police car to pull into the driveway. And when she heard the sound of the doors open, she put a handgun in her mouth and she pulled the trigger. Now I know a piece of medical trivia that I desperately wish I didn't know, and that is it is possible to survive a gunshot wound uh, from that range, provided that the angle is high enough that enough of the brain stem is left intact that should first responders, in this case the police, arrive fast enough to the scene that they can stabilize the individual. This is how my mom lived an additional 12 hours and how I found her eight hours later. I was in Vermont at the time. I had uh, been out of grad school for two years and I was eating Indian food with my then girlfriend when my sister called me. She made two phone calls. The first phone call, uh, she was concerned. She had called my mom at the house and she hadn't received an answer and in fact the answering machine seemed to have been switched off. What happened next was that between the two phone calls about 10 minutes apart, she had made the first phone call from the gas station on a cell phone. She got in her car, she started to drive and she was pulled over by a police officer who recognized her car. Granby's a very, very small town. My mom was well known. They told her what had happened and the next phone call I got was my sister having a panic attack uh, telling me what she knew at the time, which was that my mom had attempted suicide and was unconscious at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. I stood trying to understand those words over a suitcase as my then-girlfriend drove my car to the nearest gas station, filled it with gas, got me some snacks and some bottles of water, and then drove it back. And when she got back to my apartment, she found me still standing there staring dumbly down at a suitcase with nothing in it. She then directed me to my clean bag of laundry, which I hadn't yet 
unfolded or folded and put away, and we just dumped it into my suitcase. And I then sped the three-hour journey in about two and a half hours from Vermont to Hartford, Connecticut. When I got to the hospital, my sister was sitting in front of the door to the room where my mom was, and she was saying, it's my fault, it's my fault, it's my fault, over and over again. And it's not her fault. It was not her fucking fault. It was 100% not her fault. But I understood why she felt that way. I felt that way, too. My dad felt that way as well. My brother was still uh, in Boston. We hadn't been able to reach him at this point, and I'm sure he also felt this way. My mom took losing her children to moving out very, very hard, and my sister was the last of the three of us to move out. She had only moved out about two weeks before this took place. My mom was not the easiest person to live with, and when I had lived with her during the span between graduating college and going off to grad school, my mom became increasingly um, snappish and forgetful and depressed. And living in that environment in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut, it starts to seep into you. And we each, the three of us, found different ways to escape that. And we all felt guilty for doing so and for keeping my mom at arm's length. My dad and my mom had divorced in 2001, and my dad was feeling his own guilt over that. And he had done the best he could to stay in contact with the family, but my mom didn't want him around. When I went into the room where they were keeping my mom, she uh, was lying in the bed. She had a foam headpiece strapped around her head. Both of her eyes looked like she had been punched in them. She had a plastic hose taped to her mouth and a respirator was making her chest rise and fall. Her right hand was encased in a plastic bag that had the word evidence on it. When I asked the orderly, because at that point all I knew is she had attempted suicide and she was unconscious and that she was at this point in a coma, I asked the orderly, is there a chance that she'll come out of the coma? And the orderly said, very bluntly, surprisingly bluntly, her brains are sticking out of the back of her head. The answer is no. The second piece of medical trivia that I know that I wish I didn't know is that when a person dies in a hospital bed, it is very rarely like you see on television and in the movies. There is not a series of beeps followed by a single long tone indicating that the person has passed. In my mom's case, she was hooked up to so many different machines, each one making different beeps and clicks and whirring sounds, and hooked up to a respirator, causing her chest to rise and fall with a repetitive motion that by the time she did pass, though we were all in the room, we all missed it. I was staring out the window, saying to myself the same thing I'd been saying for the past four hours, which is, why, Brooke, why did you do this? What were you thinking? Why didn't you say something? And my dad was pacing back and forth at the other end of the room, and my sister was sitting in the chair when the nurse came in and informed us that Brooke Pielli had passed. In the aftermath of her suicide, um, there were three revelations that came to light. The first, obviously, was the gun. We didn't know she had a gun, and in fact, the police discovered that she had somehow purchased it illegally from a local sporting goods store. This was itself a surprise, but more so the fact that she was a devout Quaker, and in fact had raised us to be Quakers. When we were old enough to not be annoying sitting in Quaker meeting for two hours, that's what we call church, they have a different word for everything, um, you sit in silence for two hours, and by the time we were old enough to not irritate everyone doing that, we converted to uh, Quakerism. Uh, so devout was my mom to uh, the spirit of Quakerism that not only were real guns not allowed the house, 
uh, toy guns were not allowed in the house. Any action figures or toys that we got that came with guns, those toys were immediately thrown away. In fact, my mom liked to do this thing where when we'd go to the mall, we'd go into the toy store and she would smuggle in a roll of stickers in her purse. And the stickers were bright red and they said in bold white letters, warning, this is a war toy. It has been known to promote violence in children. Think before you buy. And my brother, sister, and I would have to be lookout while my mom snuck around the store surreptitiously slapping the sticker on every G.I. Joe toy or Nerf gun or BB gun in the store. The second revelation that came out was uh, that she was in massive debt, which we didn't know. At the time, she'd been apparently moving the debt from one credit card to another to another, and she didn't want anyone to know how bad her financial straits were. She had been struggling to hold down a job for the past several years, and she had insisted on keeping my child at home, even after the divorce, when everyone was saying, you really should sell this. In order to go to grad school, in order to escape living with her during her period of decline, not knowing how bad that decline was, I didn't have enough money to pay for it myself. And one of the pieces of guilt that I live with is that I insisted that both she and my dad help pay for it. At the time, I thought she could afford it, and I now know that she couldn't. The third revelation that came out was the autopsy that was performed uh, revealed that she had been suffering from stages of uh, Parkinson's and Parkinson's dementia. This accounts for a lot of her forgetfulness and her irritable behavior and certain physical um, issues that I had noticed in the lead up to what had happened. We think that her mother, my grandmother, had also suffered from this. She'd exhibited very similar symptoms at around the same age. At the time, uh, we all feared that it was Alzheimer's. And my mom had an autopsy performed on my grandmother. And we never saw those results. My mom merely announced that, don't worry, it's not Alzheimer's. Going through her papers, we never found anything, and we believe that she destroyed them. We believe that she was probably aware that she had Parkinson's and Parkinson's dementia. As I said before, my mom was a writer. She was also a martial artist. Uh, when she passed, she was a first degree black belt in Kempo. She didn't leave a note for us. Uh, instead, she merely left her first degree black belt wrapped up in a coil on the chair in front of her writing desk. She had often told us that when she died, she wanted to be buried or cremated with it. Pinned over the sink of my childhood home when we were growing up, my mom had placed a piece of paper that looked like a plaque. And it said, notice, I am a Quaker. In case of emergency, please be quiet. <laughs> now, this is not merely uh, a reflection on how Quakers perform their services by sitting in silence for two hours. It's also the mantra by which my mom chose to live and, unfortunately, how she chose to die. Thank you very much.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Of Monsters and Men behind me now, and we just heard from Morgan Pielli. Well, as you know, we have a lot of live shows coming up. On the 22nd and 23rd of September, we're in Portland, Oregon. On the 24th and 25th of September, we're in Seattle. On the 24th, we also have our usual New York and Los Angeles dates. Then we go to Toronto. Toronto is on the 9th of October. We're still taking pitches for that Toronto show. The theme is Goddamn. We're in Denver, Colorado on October 14th. The theme that night is Help. Our next shows out of town are in Atlanta. November 6th is Atlanta. Milwaukee is November 14th. In Atlanta, the theme is nasty. In Milwaukee, the theme is fuck this. We're in Cleveland on November 21st. The theme that night is so emotional. And Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City is the latest show we've added. We're there on December 12th. The theme that night is twisted. You can always find all the information you need about our live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. And you can always pitch us for the upcoming tour dates if you just pitch me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Whoa! But I have to be going now. Come on, let's split this joint. We'll come back tomorrow and show them some real stuff. Well, I guess that's it then, huh? I must bring this to an end now. All right. Let's get it over with. Well, see you around. See you around, sucker! And that's the way it was. Goodbye.